Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. And today is episode 12. And today we're going to be interviewing Amber. Good morning, Amber. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. I'm here and I'm ready. Awesome. Sounds good. So getting into it, tell us a little bit about your story of addiction recovery. I guess, you know, if there's anything in childhood that happened that you think contributed to it. Okay, well, it's a long story. <laughs> um, I have been an uh, addict, like I was in full-blown addiction for probably 31 years. The only time I stopped using during that period was when I was pregnant with my two boys, who are now adults, 22 and 24. Um, I raised them as a single mother. Um, so I've been clean now for two years almost two years on Christmas Day. I'm not like a diehard day counter or month counter or any of that. But on Christmas Day of this year, 2021, I will be clean uh, two years after 31 years of addiction. So when it comes to my childhood, I would say that, I mean, looking back now, I don't feel I had a really good upbringing. Um. I mean, I'll try and be nice. They are my parents, and they were also struggling. You know, it's like your parents are still growing up while they're trying to raise you, you know? So they made a lot of mistakes, and it was really hard. It was a really challenging, hard, traumatic childhood, really. Um, so I can remember, like, as before I was even five years old, um, waking up in the middle of the night and there'd be people over drinking drugs. And I, you know, I was just a, a baby really. And I would see, you know, my, my parents and their friends, whoever they were, um, partying, using, drinking, doing drugs. I mean, I didn't really know, but I knew it wasn't normal, even as at that young, like I was less than five. Um, you can interrupt me anytime, Jim, by the way. But uh, when I was five, so let's see. My mom had me um, when she wasn't married. Um, I was born in BC. And then when I was one, we moved back to Ontario, and she met my stepdad, who already who had my two sisters. Um, he had custody of them. My older sister, Donna, and then my sister, Kim, is the same age as me. And then together, they had my youngest sister, Rachel, so when I was five years old, we moved to Alberta So from Ontario. So in Alberta, um, you know, the drinking and the drug use continued with my parents. They were like middle class, you know, working family, paycheck to paycheck, um, a lot of stress over money. Um, the first time I remember, um, my dad has only ever put, really put his hands on me one time in my life. And it was when um, we lived in Alberta and we were moving to another house and uh, I was the only one who hadn't seen the house yet. <laughs> so um, I kept nagging him, dad, I want to see the house, dad, I want to see the house. And he was so overwhelmed by my mom. She was really overbearing and controlling and like the, you know, the firm hand in, in the family. So um, he lashed out at me and backhanded me, and I hit my eye up a bike spoke and ended up with stitches in my eye. So that was the one and only time I remember my dad putting his hands on me. But I also remember when we moved there at five years old was the first time I remember my mom's handprint being on the side of my bum. 
um, from her, you know, spanking me. So the first time I actually used, I didn't even know I was using. I was nine years old. We were living in Alberta. And I woke up one morning after, you know, one of these big parties. And I had already been experimenting with cigarettes at that age. So I woke up and seen what I thought was a cigarette on the coffee table and I took it out to the shed behind our house and I smoked it, not knowing it was actually marijuana. And I came into the house and I, I was just totally out of it. Now when I think about it, um, my whole family was still sleeping. It was really early in the morning and I sat on the counter and ate basically a whole loaf of toast, butter and jam and then passed out all day. And my mom couldn't figure out why I was sleeping all day. So that was the first time I remember using any substance at all. Um, I figured out like afterwards that it wasn't a cigarette. And so the, when I, the first time I really started smoking weed, I was 12. Was there a reason for that when you originally, I know you said it was a mistake, but was there a reason what? you were um, smoking the marijuana? Was there a reason that you were trying it? Did, were you having stress at the time or was it just you were being a kid experimenting? I really believe I was being a kid experimenting. Um, like once I smoked that first cigarette by accident at nine, um, at tw I never used again after that. I mean, that's so young. You know, when I look back now, I couldn't imagine my nine-year-old boy smoking a joint. But at 12 years old, again, with the, the drinking and the partying in my house, I mean, my house was that house that, you know, the kids came to and, my friends came to. So at 10 years old, we moved back to Ontario. And we lived, we moved back to uh, basically Scarborough, where I grew, I grew up just outside of Toronto. Um, it's pretty much the same city, just a bit, not as, you know, it's not like downtown Toronto, but Scarborough is literally a part of the GTA. It's right beside Toronto. So that's where we had moved from when we moved to Alberta. And then when we moved back to Ontario, we moved back to Scarborough. And I ended up moving into a townhouse complex. And, you know, my house was like the house, you know, my parents, my dad had the big speaker systems and the stairs and friends would come over in the basement. So the first time I remember my mom smoking a joint with me, I was 12 years old. And this family had just moved into the townhouse complex from downtown Toronto, um, from, you know, it's a well-known kind of hood in Toronto called Regent Park. And this family moved in to our townhouse complex in Scarborough from Regent Park, from that, like more oh i mean they were definitely wet like way more i guess jaded than the kids in our neighborhood and uh yeah so i started dating the brother of that family i was 12 years old and his name uh i won't say his name but he was 16 and my mom i i remember my mom being drunk and she would always just be so horrible i mean she was an alcoholic she was abusive um, I mean, she was very abusive to me and my sister when we were young, like, I had so much resentment to her about that later in life, but I mean, I had this 16 year old boyfriend who was from Toronto downtown and I was only 12 years old. And that was the first time I remember my mom smoking a joint with me. I was 12. So that summer, the summer I left grade eight, um, having this you know, 16 year old boyfriend, I lost my virginity that summer, was only 12 years old. And I started grade nine. And once I started grade nine, I met pretty much right away this group of friends, um, girls, who I still actually talk to to this day. <laughs> and 
that was when I started experimenting. And I mean, at this point, I wasn't even, I was going to be 13 in the December. And uh, I really started, you know, I would be drinking. I smoked tons of dope, like hash, marijuana. I mean, I would literally sit in my room before going to high school each morning, grade nine, and I'd be lining up, you know, uh, bottle topes of hash and smoking weed and, you know, going to school and, you know, skipping class. I think I skipped 250 classes in grade nine and nobody, it like missed the entire system's radar. Um, so I never was got, there was no consequences for me skipping that much school in grade nine until I hit grade 10 <laughs> and they actually caught it. And the uh, principal p- pulled me into the office and said, once you finish your grade 10 year here, you're out of here. Because when he tried to contact my mom, she was like, don't fucking call me at work. You know, I don't want to hear this shit basically. You know, and I, I dealt with that through my whole childhood. I was very, very, very intelligent kid. I graduated like at the top of my class in public school. I was an athlete. I, I played every sport. Um, but after my, that summer, after grade eight, you know, I can honestly say everything pretty much went to shit. <laughs> yeah. But I never, I'd never received a lot of support from the get-go from my parents, like, in everything I accomplished in public school and all the sports I played and nothing. You know, I represented my school um, all over Scarborough and competitions and athletic events. And so once I got to grade nine, that pretty much all went out the window after that summer after grade eight. So that was when, in my young teen years in high school, is when I started using things like acid, uh, mushrooms, uh, drinking, going to parties. Um, And it was actually at a house that um, we would go to after school that there was this older guy. He was probably about 21, and it was his apartment. And he was doing lines of cocaine one day after school, and there was no one around for some reason. It was like this singular moment. And he looked over at me, and he said, do you want to try a line? And I had no fear of anything. And I was like, yep, and I did it. And I remember leaving that house that day, standing at the bus stop to go home, and I was like, I feel amazing. (laughs) Like, I felt so amazing. Like, I was like, wow, you know? Was this But none of my friends... Was Sorry, it? Go ahead. I, I know you said that your mom was uh, one of those kind of leave me the hell alone while I'm at work. So do you think possibly you were kind of numbing yourself from the situation at home? Um, I don't know. I was such a resilient kid. Like, I really, like, thrived as a kid. Like, given everything that I went through, I played so much sports. I was like a house league leader. I, you know, represented my school in speech arts, um, you know, across the city, you know, like, you know, that one kid that goes to represent your school, you know, against all the other schools and, you know, athletic events and stuff like that. I'm amazed, but I know now when I look back, like I would go to school early and run track. I would stay at school late. It was like, I didn't want to be at home because my mom was so all over the place. Like she was an alcoholic, you know, so you never knew what you were going to get with her. She was abusive. Um, she would drink to cope with, I guess, her feelings to deal with her stress, but man, it had a massive impact on me. And I think looking back now, I still say right now, that I can look back and I've said it even before I was clean you don't realize when you're a teenager and you're out partying and you're you know going to parties and experimenting and you're doing that you know constantly that you're actually I think forming you know some of the habits that you carry into adulthood 
you know, and at what point, even as a young adult, do you say, okay, you know, when there's never been any boundaries or, or consequences, do you say, okay, I need to stop doing this and get, get serious about life, you know, maybe at 21. <laughs> it didn't happen. It didn't happen, you know, and, and yeah. So I don't know. It's like, I definitely like what ended up happening was, you know, I had my mom smoking dope with me at 12 and by 15, you know, I was in my second high school and I would come home and she'd be like, you know, you're a fucking space cadet, la la la. And my go-to was like, don't tell me to not do what you are doing. You've given me cigarettes my whole life. You get smoked dope with me, and now you're calling me a space cadet. So at that age, you really, I felt like she was the biggest hypocrite, you know. And so she literally, at 15 years old, threw my stuff out the door and kicked me out, and my sister, and threw us out on the street. And at that age, at 15 in Ontario, I wasn't even old enough to collect social assistance. So I lived on the streets of Scarborough for about four months before I was able to get an apartment for me and my sister. What was it like living on the streets? It was horrible. It was horrible. Me and my sister would sleep in this 24-hour donut shop. I mean, I was only 15 years old. I was a baby. You know, when when I look back now, it's so overwhelming to think, to imagine my children going through any of that. You know, my two boys, like, never in a million years would I ever do that to them. You know, so there's that. There's, like, that massive weight of how could you do that to me? You know, your own child. You know, like, like there was no... And, and I really feel like that's been the case with my mom to this day is she fails to accept responsibility for her actions. There's no acknowledgement of what she put me through. Um, she's a very toxic person, and I really have to just kind of love her from a distance, you know. And I try. I try, but some days it's just so hard. So because here we are still, like, how many years later? I mean, I'm 46 now. And trust me, I've confronted my mom on so many levels over the years. But it was really hard. I mean, me and my sister, we would stay in 24-hour donut shops, and, you know, you could smoke in the, them back then, and she would, you know, pass out for an hour or two, and I'd sit there, and then I'd do the same thing. And then um, somebody, I can't even remember who found some lady. Um, she was like really religious and she had, uh, you know, she had kids. So she agreed to let me sleep on the top bunk of her kids' bunk bed. Um, and every night she would come in my room and pray. And it's actually amazing that that happened to me because it was when that happened to me that, you know, I had always been a great kid, a great student that. I was like, I have to go to school. I have to get enrolled in school. and uh, But it was really hard. It was really hard. You know, I ended up in my own place with my sister. And uh, actually, uh, one of my best friends growing up. And, uh, yeah, not, that was a shit show, too. I mean, my sister, that's when, when we lived there, that's when she got pregnant with my niece. I mean, she was only 15. <laughs> wow. Crazy. Ah, uh, yeah, it was hard. So... You know, and I mean, I literally just started working. I lied about my age, got waitressing jobs to support myself. But I pretty much, like, was from the streets and knew at a young age, like, in my way of thinking that I needed to get money. You know, money was, and survive. So I literally have been, you know, was living in survival mode for my entire life. And... 
yeah, it's, it's been like, it's been really, really hard, you know? So, I mean, from the time I had my own apartment at 15, I mean, I was on a mission to make money and, you know, I did a lot of drugs and it wasn't long before at 17 years old, 18 years old, um, I figured out that I could make money by working in the adult entertainment industry. And at 18 was the first time I went and um, went to a strip bar to strip. And yeah, that night was a little mind blowing too because the first night I ever danced, the second person I ever danced for paid me uh, five grand to spend the night with them. And I never danced again. Wow. Yeah. And I spent 20 years working in the adult entertainment industry. I mean, on and off. Like, there is that whole period that I had my kids. So, I mean, that was at 18. And at 21, like, I spent a lot of time on the underground rave scene here in Toronto. Um, I lived right downtown. Um, You know, I lived with the the biggest dealer on the underground uh, rave scene. A friend of mine, Lee, I wish I could track him down and see, you know, if he's somewhere, who knows. But, like, I did tons of drugs, cocaine, tons of ecstasy. I was about to ask. Sorry? I was actually just about to ask you about the drugs and stripping, because from what I understand, a lot of the adult entertainment industry, there's a lot of drugs going around, just like to help girls get on stage and stuff, supposedly. Well, it wasn't like a thing, like all the girls there, trust me, it's like uh, they know what they're doing. I mean, everyone, there's nobody pushing drugs on you ever at any point because um, strip clubs, like if the owners aren't the ones pushing the drugs, but it's that environment, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's like how you cope with what you're doing, you know, like it's, I remember being so nervous the first guy I danced for, my legs were shaking and he pretty much gave me, you know, money and was like, fuck off. <laughs> You're a horrible <laughs> dancer. And I'm an amazing dancer, but I was so nervous. Like I, it was, it was crazy. I can see it like a movie in my mind. Like I have like a really good memory and it's like, I can still see me standing there in that club, you know? So this, and then I, I remember, you know, leaving him and going back up to the bar and I, I made eye contact with this, this guy. He ended up owning a chain of cafes across Toronto and uh yeah i ended up i wouldn't say dating him but you know whatever for like a year after that what do you mean what, I, what do you mean by whatever what do you mean by whatever would you just sleep with him for well, money i don't know if we were dating or if it was like who knows what it was it, it wasn't anything i don't know what i mean he loved fucking me <laughs> okay so i mean really that's what it comes down to you know but I, he owned a chain of cafes across toronto and yeah he was, you know, loaded and, you know, he knew about my lifestyle and all the friends I hung out with on the underground race scene. And then one time he, he, this, he offered to take me to Niagara on the lake and he was like, you know, I, I want to try ecstasy, blah, blah, blah. And so he actually gave me money to go to get some. And I was going to be meeting him in this hotel in Toronto. And the next day we were going to go to Niagara on the lake. And I got to the hotel. And he was in the shower, and I sat down at the table in the hotel room, and I busted out a a line of cocaine. And, uh, you know, he's like, oh, get in the shower, la, la, la. So I get in the shower, and he's like, 
oh, I'm going to be, I'll be right back. You know, I just got to go grab something from whatever. And when I got out of the shower, there was a hundred dollar bill sitting on the table in the hotel room and I never talked to him again. He left me there at the hotel, left a hundred dollars on the table. It was pretty much like, if you're going to do cocaine, you know, fuck off. But I mean, it was like this really bizarre moment because I had been dating him for a year. Or I don't know if it was dating. I don't know what that was, but you know, so it was like literally just with one line of cocaine, it was like he was out. <laughs> wow. But he had asked, told me to get ecstasy for us, you know? So it was pretty fucked up, you know? I remember crying and feeling horrible and yeah, but I mean, I just went on with life, continued using and you know, and it was like a lot of shit went down on the underground race scene. It went from like, you know, a lot of cocaine and ecstasy. And then a lot of my friends got addicted to heroin and I would go get it for them because I was the only one who didn't use heroin at the time. And I don't know why, but to this day, I don't know how I've still to this day, never stuck a needle in my arm. And I'm amazed that that, cause I, I, I'm convinced if I had, I'd be dead, you know? So yeah. So through, by the time I was 21, I was living in Toronto, and I met um, my first son's father. Like, my both my kids have the same father, but I met their father um, at an after party, and he was sitting in the corner, big guy, and I was like, you know, what are you doing here? I was so outgoing. I would talk to anybody, and yeah, anyways, one bottle of uh, Ray and Nephew, I think it's called a Jamaican rum, and <laughs> I was pregnant with my first son at 21. So what's crazy is I left their dad when Marley, my oldest son, was eight months old because uh, their dad would go and gamble, you know, his paycheck. And, you know, I lived in the shittiest, shittiest piece of shit building in Toronto when I got pregnant with Marley, uh, my oldest son. And uh, it was a bachelor apartment. I mean, me and his dad would sleep on this little single bed. We had nothing. Oh, but it... I met some really great people living there. We all like, I, the only time in my life, it, I say to this day that it was from living there that I no longer have this like attachment to material things. Like I don't, I know that they don't bring happiness because we had nothing, just dirt. I mean, the, me and, and my sister Kim, cause she ended up coming to live with me there too. Told me she was having a nervous breakdown. And so three of us living in a little bachelor apartment. But, I mean, me and, the, and our friend upstairs, Jesse, who we still talk to to this day, we would walk to Honest Ed, get free turkeys, you know. It was like, if one of us had, we all had, you know. And it was so, it was like we literally had nothing. But it was one of the happiest times of my life. But I knew I could never bring a baby home to that place. And I walked the streets of Toronto, I mean, right up to eight months pregnant, looking for a better place to bring my son home to. Um, with not much help from their dad. So, um, yeah, I ended up getting into a, like a junior one bedroom right before I had Marley. And eight months later, I left their dad. He came home one day. Um, I had been cooking and, you know, he'd been, he had fucked off for a few days. And I was just like, this is crazy. I mean, we have a little baby. So he, and he came home and he said one word, one sentence to me. And I got up. He said, do you have your share of the rent? <laughs> And I mean, I wasn't working. I was staying home with the baby. I was on assistance. He was working full time. He said that one sentence to me, do you have your share of the rent? And I said, nothing. I got it from the table. I walked down to the rental office. I gave my two months notice and I was gone a week later. So he was an active. One 
Sorry, go ahead. He was in active addict as well if he was gambling then. Oh, yeah. He was gambling. He would use cocaine. He was a cocaine dealer when I met him. But he was also a chef. He had been a chef for 10 years at the old spaghetti factory. So he was just, you know, he, he drank. He liked to gamble on football games, stuff like that. So he literally said, I mean, I was on assistance with my first son. He was only, you know, five. He was an infant. And, uh, you know, he would fuck off for days and spend his whole paycheck. And, I mean, what I was getting from assistance didn't even cover formula for our son, never mind food or anything else. And he literally said that one sentence to me, do you have your share of the, you got your share of the rent? And I was like, you know, but what's crazy is I've had these profound moments in life where I remember standing outside of our shitty-ass building when I was pregnant with Marley, and I looked across the street, and I seen him standing there, and I remember in my mind saying, with or without you, I'm having this baby. Because at that point, I didn't know, you know, should I keep Marley? Could I raise Marley? You know, I, I didn't know. I mean, I, I was the last person anyone would have thought would have had a baby. You know, I was the party girl. I was the, the social butterfly. I was, you know, I was, I was just nuts but nobody ever thought I would have had a baby but I remember in that moment saying I'm having this baby with or without you and he said that once one sentence to me and I was gone a week later and actually it was my parents who showed up and they've done that numerous times actually in my life I can't even tell you so it's fucked up as my upbringing was Uh, my parents have saved my ass from a few crazy relationships you know literally showed up with the u-haul kind of shit so, um, yeah, I left a week later, and six months after leaving him, I walked out of Marley's daycare, and he was standing outside of the daycare, and we spent one night together, and I got pregnant with my second son, Dylan. Wow. One night. Yeah, one time. <laughs> so I had two boys under two by the time I was 23. So at 25, I left. My parents had left Scarborough and moved to Pickering. So I ended up moving in with them in Pickering, and that's where I got pregnant with uh, my second son, Dylan, with their father. And that was so by 23, I had two boys under two. And at 25, I moved to a city just a little further east of Pickering where my parents were living. You know, it was like I kind of just followed them. But I never really got any support from them, like, you know, on a daily or a weekly or anything with the boys. It was it was pretty crazy. I mean, I... At 24 years old, I decided that uh, I could never tell my boys that they had to graduate from high school if I hadn't graduated. And every morning, I I didn't drive. I would pick, I would get Dylan up. He was an infant, one one month old, and I would put them both in a, a double stroller and push them up the side of the road through the snow. And I would drop Dylan off at home care at a month old and Marley off at daycare at 18 months old. And then I would get on a bus and take it to Oshawa, like a few uh, cities over to go to school. And I did that every day and I graduated with honors. So Sounds like you were determined. Sorry? Sounds like you were determined. Yeah, I've, I've had to be determined. I mean, and I really like, it's like they're all decisions that, you know, no one sat down with me and said, you know, hey, like, you know, what do you think you should do or... You know, hey, like, you know, like, there was never any real concern for me or my life or what I was doing or what I was, you know, trying to accomplish or anything. I mean, literally just no support ever, really. 
but just, you know, I'm telling you, you know what has supported me throughout my whole life? This voice inside of me. And I still, I'm telling you that voice, I can tell you later about a moment I, I had, like when I finally left my ex and got clean, of just this voice that I still say to this day is like the Holy Spirit that is speaking within me, you know, and luckily, thank God, at times in my life, you know, I've heard that voice and said, yeah, and I've had no support. You know, it's not like I've literally just gone on that voice in my heart that said, you need to do this, you know, and I've, I, I listened to it, right? Because that voice speaks, I think, to everybody, but it, the key is to listen to it. You know, and to ask questions, you know, and listen to the answers that you hear from your heart. And I still say to, to this day, uh, that's the Holy Spirit. But at 25, I moved to Oshawa, and 25 was the first time I ever smoked crack. Who introduced and you I to had, it? Sorry, go ahead. Who introduced you to it? If I told you honestly, it would probably blow you away. I don't know. I was living in this building. And there was like, okay, so I don't want to be stereotypical here, but most like Rastas, like dreads, don't smoke crack. I mean, not that any that I've ever known, they're very spiritual people, you know, it's like, you know, my son's name is Marley after Bob Marley. I know a lot about the Rastafarian culture and all that. So, and there was this dread living in the apartment below me. And I remember I was washing my floor and he came upstairs and he said, do you want to come downstairs for a toast? And I literally thought he meant weed you know i'd never smoked crack i i didn't i didn't even i had no you know like way of knowing that he meant crack you know he was like do you want to come downstairs for a token i was like sure i had no weed so i went down there and he passed me this pipe and i remember looking at it at the top there was like it was like ashes and burnt i said bro this is done he goes no 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 go ahead it's good so i put it in my mouth and i smoked it and it literally, 25 years, I smoked crack. That one moment, I mean, I took, I smoked it, and I swear, from the top of my head to the tips of my toes, I felt this rush come over my body. I couldn't even talk, and I was like, what was that? And he was like, you like that, eh? Like, he, he knew. He fucking knew, this guy. And I swear to God, I ended up smoking crack right up until I left my ex two years ago, 25 years. I mean, it literally destroyed my life, crack cocaine. Um, I lost my custody of my two boys at 25 because of it. I was in, I'd moved to another building out of that first building where that I smoked it the first time. And I moved to this other building, not knowing it was like pretty much the worst building in all of Oshawa. I didn't know anyone here really, you know, at all. So you know, there's like the south end of Oshawa where there's like this one street where there's like all these really like low-income ghetto buildings and I moved right into one. And I ended up meeting this guy when living there that was pretty much running this whole little enterprise of crack cocaine dealing in the south end. He had all his, you know, friends and, you know, his brother who was like a young offender, right? He was underage. So he would hold dope so that, you know, if he did get arrested, he's a young offender type shit. And I mean, this guy pretty much took over my whole apartment. Um, he was completely abusive to me, like mind-blowing abusive. I, like the first time I really, I, I think I'd taken some dope off him or money off of him or something that was sitting there. And he literally chased me around my apartment and 
dragged, turned on the stove burners, uh, both of them, two of them at the front of the stove, and attempted to drag me across the kitchen floor so he could burn my hands and my arms on the stove burners. And I thought for my life, like I, I had bruises all over my arms from literally pulling all my weight to the floor to prevent him from getting me off the floor and, and burning my hands. And I remember my kids being completely traumatized. I mean, they were still just babies. And my son's trying to, my son Marley trying to protect me. And it was so traumatizing. And I can tell you to this day, I still like when I talk about it, it's so hard to talk about it because I have so much guilt for that. You know, it just, it's just so hard. So I remember like looking in the newspaper at that apartment and seeing an ad for an escort agency. And I had already worked in that business. So I literally called this ad and, uh, this, uh, I didn't know at the time it was like sister agencies, you know, they were like partners. So I called the one ad and they didn't answer. I left a message and I called the other ad and I ended up talking to someone, um, that I, you know, I literally met her that day and she knew me less than two minutes on the corner of that, you know, that South end of Oshawa area, you know, she pulled up around the corner and I was standing there on the corner. She could see that I was like beaten up, you know? And she, within two minutes, she gave she offered to give me a place to live. Um, but my mom, I guess, I mean, I would literally call my parents and say, can you please take the kids for a weekend? Like, I'm overwhelmed. Like, I'm drowning here. And they were like, no, you know. And I just, I remember, like, using to, like, I couldn't cope. Like, I had no coping skills, zero coping skills at that point in my life. And I had already lived through so much at such a young age you know from 15 to 25 I had been homeless I had had my own apartment I had struggled to survive I had stripped I had been an escort you know I had two kids I graduated from school somehow amongst all of that and at 25 I was literally drowning and I was I was smoking so much dope and I lost custody of my two boys Um, my mom not knowing I mean I couldn't imagine doing this, but instead of coming to help me and coming to my apartment, she picked up the phone and called Children's Aid, which is like children's services here in Canada, and said, my my daughter's being abused and I don't know what to do. And it was an automatic six-month protection order. It took me over three years to get them back. So, yeah, hard times, man. Really hard times there. But I, I just continued using, you know, like for literally until two years ago. And I managed to never lose custody of my kids again. Um, But I was also addicted to oxys for 10 years. Um, Gosh, it's so crazy how this, like, these one singular moments, you know? Can change everything. Like someone introducing you to a drug literally destroys your life. (laughs) You know, and it's like, man, I remember, like, living in this, like, uh, rooming house, you know? And uh, this guy giving me the tiniest little line of a 40 milligram oxy. And it it knocked me out for like two days. And I ended up abusing oxys for for 10 years. And I worked as an escort, right? I could afford it. At that time, they were only $25 for an 80. And I would would blow $250 a day on them. Wow, wow. I could make make a thousand bucks in a day. (laughs) So I could pay for my hotel room. I could pay for... You know, my $250 drug habit. I could feed my kids. You know, I paid for a Mini Cooper in cash. (laughs) 
I had so much money. I traveled. Um, I went to the Bahamas. I went to the Mayan Riviera. I, you know, I went to uh, Las Vegas twice. I went to Miami, Daytona, Orlando on a cruise to the Bahamas. Like, it was just, it was bananas, you know, when I look back now. A lot of really wasted money, wasted time. You know, I think I lost a part of my soul, you know, working in that business. You know, when I was able to, like, I developed a really keen skill for reading people. Because when you work in that type of uh, industry, you know, I've had somebody pretend to be a cop and try to put me in zip ties. I mean, I, luckily, I'm from the streets. You know, like, so, (laughs) like, it's so easy for me to, like, go back to that person, you know. And, like, really, like, you know, if you threw me to the streets, I'm going to survive. You know, that's the way it goes. And my sister, who had a totally different upbringing than me, she's five years younger than me, she'd be dead in 48 hours, guaranteed. I don't know what she'd do. You know, so I learned a lot of survival skills, but great, you know, from trauma. (laughs) So During your, when you were um, being an escort, were there, was this something that was, like, really digging deep down inside, like you said? And when you say it made you lose your soul, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, it was like living a double life because okay. who I am in my soul, who I am as a, as a human being, as a person was nothing like the girl that worked in that business. You know, I was manipulative. Um, you know, I, I used, you know, sexual favors to get money out of people, you know, um, it was like, I was very good at what I did and I could turn it on and off like a light switch, you know? So you're like living a double life. You know, at one time I, I wanted to write a book. It was called The Art of Manipulation, A Tale of Two Lives. Because who I am at my core is nothing like the person that I was to work in that business. And I never had a pimp, nothing. I was the first girl to put an independent ad in the newspaper here. I got harassed. I got, you know, uh, threatened. Um, because at that time, there was only agencies. You know, you had to work for somebody. You had to pay somebody. And I was like, no, I don't fucking think so. Yeah. You know, like, so I had no fear, you know what I mean, of things. And But it's not who I am. You know, it really isn't. Like, I'm a very caring, very sensitive, very, you know, emotional, loving, affectionate, you know, smart, beautiful person. And that is just, but it was like how I survived, you know, I... It's just, but it, it's crazy because, you know, being addicted to oxys for 10 years, you know, I finally ended up, you know, at the methadone clinic and, um, I was living, I'd been living in this town, even further east from here. Um, I went through a lot of shit there too with my boys. I mean, living in this town, like east, east, east of Toronto, you get, it's just, my kids are half Jamaican, so there's less and less of a black community the further east you go. And in Bowmanville, where we live, there was literally no black people. And these two little kids are running around. And I mean, I see it show up in my life many times, but I never lost custody of my kids again. You know, if anything, I just got support. And, you know, but there was this whole thing of being harassed by the, uh, the police in that town, like my boys being harassed by them. And we ended up leaving and moving back to Oshawa. Um, and at 35, I met my best friend forever in the whole world. His name is Bobby. And if it wasn't for Bobby, I never would have been able to leave that business. And I started working, what, at 18? And at 35, I quit. Like, full stop. 
How did he help you? What did he do to get you off that or get you away from that? Well, he had lost his wife, Dawn. She had brain cancer. And he used with me, trust me, we had our whole time of using and doing drugs together. But he was like, we became instant friends. And we even went through this period where I was like, listen, like, Bobby, if you if, if you want to be friends with me, you will not, like, attempt to try and pursue a sexual relationship with me. You know, because if you were my friend, you would know that I don't I, I don't want that. That That's not what it me- would mean to be a friend to me. And I literally confronted him with that. And, uh, yeah, we've been friends to this day. Like, he had a pension. He had a business. He he knew I, I was struggling. He knew my boys. He, he really had, like, so much compassion for me, you know, and what I was going through. And his life had been totally different, like, like his life is like as an adult raising his son who actually just got married last weekend, his only son. But I remember my kids being like maybe 12 and 13 and his son being like 18. And my kids were so much more like ghetto, like so more like they were just so much more street, more smarter, more, you know, and, and so he, like, it was a, a real, like, kind of mind blower. I was like, wow, like, my kids are so ghetto. <laughs> because why it was just so, you know, sheltered and from all that stuff. And so I guess, you know, he's seen, like, how hard my life was, you know. And, uh, you know, Bobby's mother, his dad died when he was six. His mom died when he was 12. And his family pretty much abandoned him. And he grew up in a boy's home in Montreal till he was 18, right? And he managed to, you know, have a son and a wife and start a business and all that. So if it wasn't for him, I say to this day, I never would have been able to stop working like I did just at 35 done. I never did it again. One day and I had nothing, no money. Because the thing with that business is as long as you're doing it, you're loaded. (laughs) But once you stop... You know, when you get addicted to the lifestyle, you know, and how easy money comes, you know, you know, you can spend your money because the next thing wake up and pick up your phone, you know, but it wasn't always like that because at 35, I left, but I continue to use like full on, you know, and that was when it would be like, I'm spending my food money, right. To use, you know, um, you know, Christmases where there was like no gifts, you know, because we had gotten high. Um, for days or whatever it was. Um, so let's see. In like 2015, um, I had this whole group of friends growing up in Scarborough. We like, you know, partied together. Um, I still know them all to this day. I've known them all 31 years. And I remember in 2015 seeing there was this one guy, you know, his name was Sean. And he had always loved me or said he thinks he thought he loved me. I mean, I remember at 15 and 16 years old, I have pictures of us, and I remember that night him getting on his knee and telling my mom, I love your daughter so much, you know, he honestly doesn't know what love is, and I mean, that's not his fault, but, um, yeah, so, 2015, I've seen a picture of him on Facebook, and, you know, I commented on it, and we had been friends since we were 15 and 16, and uh, I ended up in a five-year relationship with him, uh, left uh, my apartment where I lived with Bobby and my boys, and me and my boys you know, moved to Barrie, which is a town just north of Toronto, and beautiful, beautiful town right on Lake Simcoe. But, I mean, Sean's a full-blown addict, and, you know, I was a full-blown addict, and we continued being full-blown addicts for five years. We were homeless. 
Um, you know, my kids had to move back to Oshawa. My oldest son moved in with my parents. My youngest son, um, he ended up getting his own apartment. But my kids learned survival from a very young age. And, you know, at 15, um, you know, like with me still partying, my, my youngest son, you know, I was still using, it wasn't like I was able to give him, you know, money. He's a teenager. They always had great clothes and all the game systems and all the, all the stuff. But, um, you know, he was like, he's seen like my life, you know, it was like, so at 15, my youngest son, you know, literally took like a half quarter of weed and broke it into fivers. And within two years, he was selling a pound a day. And, uh, yeah, I was with him the day he got arrested. Um, my youngest son ended up going to the penitentiary for years wow he just got he just got out last july so he learned so when he learned a lot when, of the skills like you had to learn like you said as far as survival doing what he needed yeah, well, to do yeah like he did but he didn't he was never homeless but it's a different culture now i mean to this day that child still chases money like he he's kind of sucked into this whole you know image thing where you know he thinks he needs to have nice clothes nice cars nice you know good-looking women and where's my oldest son he's just totally chill you know <laughs> like he's like he doesn't even he's just chilling you know he's like material things aren't as important to him you know maybe they should be a little more important and he would like get a job <laughs> which I'm trying to help him do but it's like oh man you know it was like the day my son got arrested I had asked him to pick me up from work I was uh Sean was in jail. I was living in, with my sister. I had left Scarborough where we were homeless and moved in with my sister to get away from, try and get away from crack. And Sean continued using, robbing places to use. I mean, we were literally on the streets of Scarborough homeless and he would go out and rob stores, steal things, sell them. Um, we would pay for our shitty motel rooms and continue using. And then one day the cop showed up to our hotel room and arrested him. He had broken into all these businesses, you know, and, uh, yeah. And he got arrested. He ended up going to jail for six months. And I moved to back to Oshawa with my sisters. And I got a job. And, you know, I would always, I was like a functioning addict. I would, like, try. But what, as long as I was with Sean, I was not a functioning addict. I mean, we would literally smoke every time we had right to homelessness, you know. So... Living with my sister, it was like being around, you know, like just my family, you know, or whoever it was like who wasn't really living that lifestyle. I kind of, you know, did all my drug using on the down low. You know, I'd be in a house with my sister smoking crack in my bedroom and they had no clue. You know, I'd go out and meet my dealer, you know, and come back in. But I, I wasn't doing it like with Sean, like constantly, every day, all day. And uh, so I ended up getting a job and my son picked me up from work. Uh, one night and uh, he was doing like I think 80, 80 kilometers and a 15 he got pulled over and he had 34 pounds of weed in the car 107 grams of cocaine 27 grams of crack four firearms and six over $60,000 in cash my god I'm not kidding and I freaking got arrested and my sister bailed me out and I lost my job and I was on the news and if you google my name the story is there it's a fucking shit show is what it is. And I ended up on house arrest for six months, no shit, on curfew for another six months before my 54 charges were withdrawn and my baby, my son, went to prison for two years. I mean, it was the hardest shit of my life. 
you know, honestly, like, it was the hardest. And I still, like, honestly, as I'm saying all this out loud, don't get it twisted. I've never sought any real help, like, psychological or psychiatric help. I have been in the psychiatric ward. I have seen psychiatrists at different times in my life. Um, I was on medication um, for uh, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety for 30 years. Um, but I've always been drawn to natural health products my whole life. So um, I spent two years weaning myself off medication. I mean, ask Jim, I'm a little all over the place. <laughs> yeah. But whatever. I take supplements to cope with my depression, my anxiety. I feel so much better off medication, you know, because major life events would happen to me. And I just, I mean, I had no real, like, raw, you know, emotion about it, you know, authentic emotion about it. It was just like, it just numbs me in a way that I just don't enjoy. Like, I love myself I love that I'm I you know what my go-to is now when when I'm like over the top I'm like hey I'm, I'm just passionate <laughs> I'm passionate man you know don't hate on me for that but yeah I am a little all over the place but you know what I'm a lot to lose so drop that down <laughs> yeah there you go there you go yeah yeah I'm a little all over the place but I'm a lot to lose so drop that down people because I'm telling you I love being my real, raw, authentic self, and you know, I'm I'm like the realest person anyone knows, and I think that's why I'm people are drawn to me, because I don't I don't tell people what they want to hear, because it makes them feel better. You know, I think growth is very uncomfortable. It's extremely uncomfortable, and I'm not doing somebody any favors by telling them what they want to hear. You know, maybe if somebody had told me what I needed to hear, you know, my life wouldn't have been a fucking shit show. You know, so, yeah, my son got out of prison uh, last July, but on, I'm telling you, man, like, I was sitting in a, a rooming house with my ex, and it was Christmas Day of 2019, and I remember looking back at him, and uh, I was sitting on a bed, we only had one little room, we would get high in, like, fucking lunatics every day, it was just madness, and I remember looking back at him, and he was high on fentanyl, he's overdosed uh, four times on fentanyl. Um, twice since I left him two years ago. Um, and I remember like saying to him one day, you're, you're going to stop doing that shit because even though I was addicted to Oxy, I was on methadone for 10 years, but I spent half that time weaning myself off of it. And I'll tell anyone listening right now, methadone is not a life sentence. If you work at it and you, you know, really, really, you know, go after it, you will get off methadone. I did. I, I started at, you know, 120 mils at my highest. And I took my last drink four years ago at two mils. So it was one of the hardest things I ever did. One of my greatest accomplishments. Methadone is not a lay sentence. But the whole time, I mean, I never had carries. I went to the pharmacy every day. I, you know, was still smoking crack, using cocaine. But I got off opiates, thank God. And you know why? Because I, in, in 10 years of using them, I think I only went without them five times. And the withdrawal was so horrible that... I was like, I can't do this. Like, I can't continue this. You know, like, if if I could have, I probably would have, you know. But the withdrawal that you go through is just so horrible that I was like, I can't do this. You know, like, I, I don't work anymore. I, I can't feed my addiction, and I can't feel like this. So, luckily, you know, I, I got off opiates, got off methadone. But I remember, like, saying to Sean, like, you have to stop using this. Like, you've OD'd twice now. And, and he was like, no, I don't. I'm not gonna. Like, he was a shit. 
he was a shit like so there was no like oh man to me he's that he's just the definition you know of i hate saying the word narcissist but he really is so unaware of the impact of his decisions on me. You know, when we were homeless and we were together for five years and I've known him 31 years, but his idea of loving me was the fact that he went out and stole every day so that we could get hotel rooms and have a roof over our head and do drugs. He, he's, he's literally convinced that that was loving me. You know, like, what do you mean? I went out every day and, and I'm like, Sean, like, we never had to be homeless. Loving me would have meant we never would have been homeless, you know. We would have cared enough to not be homeless. We would have cared enough about each other, you know. Like so, it's like that whole, you know, someone telling you to your face they love you for so long, and you're like, nothing you have ever done has ever truly shown me, you know, what it would mean to love me, you know. So, yeah, I remember looking back at him on that Christmas day, and I turned around, and it was like the loudest, clearest voice in my heart and soul I've ever heard in my life. And again, I will say that it is that voice of the Holy Spirit that has literally pushed me through most of my life, guiding me, you know, um, as much as it could. Like, for so long in your life, you don't listen to that voice. You don't want to listen to your heart because there's a lot of pain there, you know. So, you know, listening to that voice means taking action. It means thinking about it. It means hurting. It means having feelings. And a lot of people just don't want to face things like that. You know, but I don't know. I'm a fighter, man. I've never, I've put it aside, that voice, but I've never completely shut it out. You know, thank God. Yeah. Because it saved me. So what's your life like now? Now that you're like kind of fast forward, you said you weaned yourself off meds, you're sober, you're taking all types of supplements. Is there anything that you do besides that stuff as far as part of your routine or regimen that you think would help listeners as far as? staying sober well i eat well sleep sleep is like totally essential to me i make sure i get sleep um but i will say that you know leaving sean that day on christmas day it saved my life because within an hour i left you know that boy said to me if you love yourself you will leave and i answered it and i said i do love myself and i picked myself up and an hour later i was gone just like with Marley and Dylan's dad. And I slept on the floor of my parents' apartment for eight months during 2020, during COVID, while working full-time and saved first and last for my own apartment. So I'm back in my own place um, with my son. Um, I feel so good to be, like, have that control back over my life again. You know, feel good about, you know, the direction I'm headed. Um, you know, I take supplements. Um, I eat well. I get enough sleep. I drink tons of water. Water is life. Um, I practice a lot of self-care. You know, I, I like, I do things. I turn on candles. I, I, I diffuse essential oils. I get fresh air. Um, last week on Friday, I rescued a little girl. Her name is Chloe. Yes, um, little she, puppy. I rescued, she's a one-year-old puppy. Yeah. <laughs> Jim knows him. So tired. Mm -hmm. Like having a baby. No, it really is. But you know what? I had a dog. Her name was Biscuit. She died last year on my birthday. And it's amazing because all these still crazy things, you know, life will continue to happen to you. You know, and it's like, for me, because I've been in survival mode my whole life, it's like when you face any challenge in life, 
the first thing you have to figure out is what can I do and what can't I do? What is totally, totally out of my control no matter what I do? And all that shit you got to toss aside, toss it out the window. Focus on what you can do and keep moving forward. Because little by little, a little becomes a lot. And all those baby steps you take each day to keep moving forward and, and moving, you know, you know, really into, uh, you know, who you truly are and, and being sober, you will get there. You will look back uh, a year later and you'll be amazed at how far you've come, you know. So um, I had a dog for, she was my best friend. Uh, she literally no one, nothing in my life has ever loved me like my dog, Biscuit, who died last year. And uh, she was the love of my life. It's probably the hardest thing I've ever gone through besides my son going to prison is having to put her down and watch her die. Um, You know, it was just so traumatizing. But she's right in my room in a little urn with a little memorial, my favorite picture of her and all that. But I realized, you know, like after she died last December, you know, that I, I love dogs and they give me joy and they give me that unconditional love that I truly, truly feel I have never had in my life. And I really, it almost makes me want to cry because I've been in so many relationships and so many friends, you know, and, you know, the only person that, you know, can really look at me, the only people who can really look at me and say they love me and I truly believe it in my heart are my two boys and my best friend, Bobby, you know, and, and I'm done at this point in my life having people tell me they love me and they miss me, but they don't look for me. They don't check on me. And I will tell anyone listening right now, the biggest factor in me getting sober was people, places and things. You know, my old methadone doctor used to say that to me and I would go and every week my, my piss would be dirty because, you know, I wasn't using opiates, but I was still using cocaine and, and crack. And he would say, you know, Amber, it's people, places and things. It's people, places and things. And I'd be like, mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but one day it was like a light bulb went off in my head and I wasn't even seeing him anymore. And I was like, holy shit, this guy is like, he's right. It is people, places, and things. Like, and I literally decimated everyone around me. If there was even a one percent chance that I will use um, being around anybody or going anywhere or doing anything, I don't go. And trust me, I have. I went through all the cravings. I mean, I slept on my parents' floor after leaving Sean. You know, withdrawing. I would. I would go to bed every night thinking about using. Wake up every day thinking about my ex. But I knew if I kept going, one day I would wake up and I, I wouldn't feel that way. And it took, you know, months, but it hap- it happens. I'm telling you, if you just keep showing up for yourself and getting up every day and pushing forward, I'm telling you, within, you know, so many months, however long it takes, you will wake up one day and you will not, you know, crave, be craving drugs and scheming and thinking about drugs. And, you know, if you just keep moving forward and surrounding yourself with, with people, places, and things that, you know, support your recovery, support, you know, who you want to be in the direction you're going, I'm telling you, you will get there. I'm living proof, you know, so. That's an amazing yeah, story. Are. Yeah, that's a, that is quite some story you've got there, Amber. And I know, it's, it's a lot. Well, no, it's, it's an amazing thing that you're here now, you're sober, you're off your meds, doing everything the right way, and you did it the right way with the help of doctors and stuff. Um, and I think, and yeah. And I found you. Yes, and we found each other. And Yeah, Addicts Anonymous is really going to push my recovery forward. I've kind of hit a roadblock, like, yeah, I've been sober two years, but I've really isolated myself. 
and I've always known that like in some way I want to be a part of the recovery community in a way that you know works for me and Addicts Anonymous is it for for real that is so awesome to hear and you're going to continue to help us grow as far as writing all our steps our programs I I definitely want you to be real involved but amazing yeah so that's all we have for today um, we want to thank, thank you. Yes, you're so awesome. I want to thank you again. And for everyone listening, if you like what you heard, give us a rating on iTunes. Go and check out our Facebook group, Addicts Anonymous, where you can join up there. We give away free sobriety chips and free cause bracelets. All you got to do is ask. And check out some of our Zoom meetings. Each night we do different ones throughout the week. Some are chilling chats where it's just a real relaxed environment. Some of them have a little structure as far as step meetings. But come check it out. And that's all we have for today. So until next time.